So now we're going to read the whole of that passage from 1 Corinthians that Tim will be speaking on in a few minutes. Starting, uh, so 1 Corinthians starting at verse 29. Now we've returned to the NIV version, so you can follow this in the Pew Bibles if you want to. Now if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. But some, one may ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendour of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendour of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendour, the moon another, and the stars another. And stars differ from star in splendour. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. We're going to sing again another song which uh, reminds us of, of, of our new life through Jesus. The last, I think it's the last verse, says, um, From your tears comes our joy, from your death our life shall spring, by your resurrection. So, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Whether you are a believer or not, it seems a reasonable enough question to ask. Skeptics want to know how it's possible for a body that's rotted away in the ground or has been incinerated in a crematorium, how that could possibly be reconstituted and put back together again. Believers may be genuinely puzzled as to what resurrection existence will look like given that the only life we know and understand is the life that we live in these mortal bodies. We are limited by our experience of a lifetime. If Jesus is our model for what resurrection will look like, then when we look at the Gospels, we see that the risen Lord was recognisably Jesus after a bit, 
there was something different about him which meant that people didn't necessarily spot who he was first time round. And his body still bore the nail marks from the crucifixion and the wound from the spear that had been thrust into his side, but it's clear that Jesus wasn't in the least bothered by these. His resurrection body could apparently pass through walls and locked doors without any problem. So it was of a different composition to our bodies. And we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus' ability to do this meant somehow that his body was less substantial than it has been, as if he were some kind of ethereal spirit. After all, he persuaded his followers he wasn't a ghost by inviting them to touch him, by eating and drinking with them, and they could see that the food that he consumed disappeared. Uh, So he was real enough. So how did he pass through locked doors? And we can speculate about all sorts of possible improbable answers. We know that despite its solid appearance, a locked door is mainly just empty space. Tiny, tiny bit of nucleus in the atom, the rest of it is just just empty space. Did he have enough energy to push his way through that then, without everything bursting into flames? Could he create enough entropy temporarily to kind of have space to come through the, the, the door and the wall, but it closed up behind him? We know that if you put weighted wires on a block of ice, they will pass through the ice and the ice will reform afterwards, but that's to do with the special properties of water, I understand. Bob, you should be preaching this sermon, really, on how the physics works. Nobody knows. Um, The trouble is that there is a degree of speculation about this whole subject. We are dealing with the unknown. Nobody knows for sure, which is why... I have a little bit of a problem with Paul when he shows such a high level of intolerance to someone who asks a perfectly legitimate question. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? You idiot, is his answer. You idiot. Um, His own answer, well, you know a seed doesn't come to life unless it dies in the first place, is undoubtedly wrong from a scientific point of view. Superficially, it might appear if a seed falls into the ground and dies before it starts to grow. But we know for a fact that actually the embryo within the seed is only dormant, not dead. And the process of germination begins when the conditions are right for the embryo to be awakened. So with our benefit of scientific knowledge, we can say to Paul, you got it wrong, who's the real idiot here? We can rescue the situation perhaps by appealing to Greek philosophy and saying, well, the immortal soul that we've all got is the equivalent of the embryo within the seed, and so that's the the spark that's kindled back into life again. I think that creates as many problems as it solves, and Paul probably wouldn't have wanted to go down that road. We do not know. But as so often is the case, the Bible should not be read as if it were a scientific textbook. By way of a simple analogy we can see how seeds appear to fall into the ground and die before they germinate and grow into plants. And it's, it's helpful by way of an illustration without necessarily being 100% scientifically accurate. And it enables Paul to make a point about that whatever our resurrection bodies end up being like in the end, there is both continuity 
and discontinuity with the bodies that we have now. Just as you only ever get oak trees from acorns, so whatever body we have then will in some way be uniquely and unmistakably linked to the body we have now. And yet at the same time, the transformation will be amazing and profound. That massive tree from that tiny acorn? Who'd have thought it? And yet the continuity is there even when we see this colossal transformation that has taken place. Paul says the difference between this body and our heavenly body will be as significant as the difference between the glory of the physical bodies we see here on earth and the glory of the heavenly bodies that we see, the glory of the sun and the moon and the stars. There is a vast difference between the two. The change that we undergo between now and then will be drastic and it will be a fundamental improvement. Paul sums up this change for the better by means of four comparisons, which he introduces by drawing on the analogy of a seed being sown or planted in the ground. So he says, the body that is sown, this mortal body, is perishable, but it will be raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. These are fundamental deep-seated contrasts between now and then. It will be different. It will be better. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, Tony Thistleton draws out the nature of these comparisons in such a way as to draw out the different facets of our mortality. What does it mean to be imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual? That is is different from what we experience now. And by comparison with our present life, the life to come has so much more vibrancy about it than perhaps the childish images of angels playing on harps that we've seen of heaven that do little to inspire us about a desire to be there and to do that. What does it mean that these bodies are perishable now and the new bodies will be imperishable? Perishability is all to do with the ageing process. It's marked by decreasing to capacity and increasing weakness. We know what that's like. Leads us downhill in the direction of exhaustion and stagnation. These bodies were never perfect in the first place. They get worse as they get older. We are acutely aware of our own shortcomings and failings. Some of us will feel, when we look in the mirror, that these bodies are marred or spoiled in more than one way. So to a greater or lesser extent, we are all in a state of decay. And that's what perishability is all about. And we all experience that physically as we get older, But that doesn't exhaust the idea of what it means to be perishable. Young and old, there may be times when we experience a sense of vanity, emptiness, the fruitlessness of life, a sense of missed potential, a middle-aged crisis that can last for quite a long time sometimes. Like the prophet in Isaiah 49, we might cry out, I've worked in vain and I've spent my strength for nothing. It's all been a waste of time and effort and energy. That also is all part of what it means to be perishable, that sense of 
unfulfillment, missed opportunity. If that sums up what being perishable is about, what does it mean to be imperishable? The opposite is more than just permanence or a life of everlasting duration, which actually sounds like it could get a bit tedious after a while. If we are imperishable, that means we have limitless capacity to flourish and to grow. The downward trend that is part of our experience now will not be part of our experience then. It will be growth. It will be abundance. It will be fulfilment. It may be that then we have the chance to experience the perfection which so painfully and patently eludes us now. Rather than a regression into perishability, the life to come will be marked by purpose and development. It will be substantial. It will be fulfilling. It will be a source of satisfaction and delight. It will be worth the wait. And expectations will be fulfilled rather than disappointed. The second contrast Paul draws is between dishonour and glory. Dishonour, shame, disgrace, humiliation, misery, pitifulness. We all know that life can be troublesome, filled with lamentation and complaint. There are times when we get more than our fill of mourning and sorrow, frailty and grief. Sudden death or bereavement can bring that home to us. The Book of Common Prayer puts it well and poignantly, in the midst of life, we are in death. The words written in 1549 have a degree of truth. Man that is born of a woman hath but a short time to live and is full of misery. He cometh up and is cut down like a flower. He flieth as it were a shadow and never continueth in one stay. Those words sum up the fragility, the immense fragility of human existence that we tend to forget about sometimes in 21st century Britain. And they knew as well that there's nothing dignified about dying. That intense vulnerability of what it means to be human. We are immensely privileged to live in this day and age and in this place. We are insulated from the privations which characterise the majority of human existence around the world and through history. And so we find it easy to focus on the value and dignity of our lives. We don't like to think of ourselves as being contemptible in any way. Yet the harsh fact remains that mortality always gets us in the end. And even before death comes for us, there are things about our bodies, who we are, what we've done, how we feel about ourselves, that can fill us with a sense of shame and unworthiness if we allow our minds to dwell on them. All part of being sown in dishonour. Yet Paul speaks of resurrection life as being marked by glory, not shame or dishonour. And glory is a wow word. It is an amazing word. Isn't this brilliant? Isn't this fantastic? What images do we have that enable us to catch a glimpse of the glory that is to come? What about the radiance that we see sometimes? The radiance on the faces of good friends as they warmly embrace each other after a long time apart. What about the delight and wonder experienced by a child on a Christmas morning? 
the mutual warmth and affection expressed by a bride and groom on their wedding day, the joy of lovers when they meet each other. In these encounters and experiences, we catch a glimpse of the glory experienced when a spirit-filled believer comes face to face with God in Christ. Amazing, glorious, fantastic. That sense of being overwhelmed with God's love, with God's joy, with God's life. It's the love of God which gives us value, gives dignity to who we are, brings us glory. And in knowing the fullness of that, all the things which bring us shame and dishonor now are stripped away and are replaced by life in all its fullness. We experience now a mixture of dishonor and glory, good days and bad days. Then the dishonor is gone. The old is gone. The new has come. It is glorious. And the third contrast is between weakness and power. Again, depressingly, we all experience diminishing power as our brain cells begin to die off and are never replaced. We experience limitations on our freedom as we have to live with the choices that we've made. Doors that once stood open to us have now closed forever. Those opportunities have gone for good. We experience weakness as the horizons of our life begin to narrow. We lose the capacity to do fresh stuff and strike out in novel directions. Weakness is manifested in lack of capacity, a loss of potency, dearth of energy. And we're constrained and frustrated by our limitations and left feeling frail, fragile and vulnerable. But when we are raised in power, those limitations are gone. We will have the capacity to act, to live life to the full, to bring every good purpose to fulfilment and fruition, even more so than we remember it was like when we were young. We could think of a crescendo of empowerment that equips us then to do things which are beyond our wildest ambitions and dreams here and now. It's not just life that goes on forever. It is life in all its fullness. Is that what it's going to be like? Who knows? I haven't been there. But Paul wants to convey to us the sense that resurrection life will be brilliant and fantastic and will put anything we know or experience here in the shade. There will be no complaints. There will be no regrets. There will be no one saying, I want my money back. There will be no sense of disappointment when we found out what it's really like. I thought it might be a bit better than this. No, it will fulfil all our wildest expectations. Yet despite that, most of us are in no hurry to get there. Unless we're really old, or really ill, or really depressed, or really in pain, there's more than enough to keep us here. And why not? There are people here whom we love. There is a life that we enjoy and we want to make the most of. To some extent, our attachment to this life is a reflection of the degree of comfort and prosperity we enjoy in our immensely privileged lifestyle. Because for us, 
Life is not nasty, brutish and short and unpleasant. There are so many things we have here that we would regret leaving behind. Whereas there are others in different places and different ages, life has been so tough they're just glad to move on to something better. If you look at Maslow's Triangle of Needs, you'll see that most of us have quite enough resources to pay a good amount of attention to our self-actualisation, our fulfilment, making the most of the person that we are. Our physical needs mainly are met. We feel sufficiently safe and loved and okay about ourselves to look to make the most of life. And for that very reason, a lot of what Paul puts on the menu for resurrection life, we think, I've got quite a bit of that now already, thank you very much. And there may actually have been a a few in Corinth among the privileged elite who felt a bit like that. We don't need resurrection life, we've got it all here, thank you. But this is not as good as it gets. What is to come will be so much better even compared to the most comfortable and secure and healthy and robust of us. If our lives here and now are good, that really is something to celebrate and be grateful for. Every foretaste of heaven is to be savoured and enjoyed. But let's recognise that we are limited here and now by what we experience in these natural bodies. Beyond death, God has promised us spiritual bodies, which will be as much indifferent in league to what we have now as the plant is different to the seed. What's a spiritual body be like? Oh, that's another good question. Luther expressed the hope well when he said that the resurrection body is really the work of God. Be content to hear what God will do, then leave it to him. It will be strong and vigorous, healthy and happy, more beautiful than the sun or moon. Who knows? Nobody does. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has the heart of anyone conceived what the Lord has in store for those who love him, says Paul. We'll just have to wait until faith gives way to sight, and then we will know for ourselves. But I like C.S. Lewis's picture in The Great Divorce. It talks about heaven being so much more real than everything we experience here. What we experience here is like being in the shadow lands compared to heaven. The grass in heaven is so real that we would cut our feet on it if we tried to walk on it in these mortal bodies. It is so much more substantial than what we know now. That was how he portrayed it. But let me leave you this morning with the story of the dragonfly. In the bottom of an old pond live some grubs who couldn't understand why none of their group ever came back after crawling up the lily stems to the top of the water. And they promised each other that the very next one who was called to make the upward climb would return and tell the others what had happened to him. And soon one of them felt an urgent impulse to seek the surface and when he reached the top and climbed out of the water onto the surface of the lily pad, he was so tired and the sun felt so warm he decided he must take a nap. And as he slept, his body changed. And when he woke up, he turned into a beautiful blue-tailed dragonfly with broad wings and a slender body designed for flying. And so fly he did. And as he saw it, he saw the beauty 
of a whole new world and a far superior way of life to what he'd ever known existed. And he remembered his friends back down below the surface of the pond. And in vain he tried to keep the promise he'd made to them. But as he flew back and forth above the surface of the pond, realising there was no way back down for him, he realised as well that even if they could see him, they wouldn't recognise such a radiant creature as one of their number. So let's sing together. There is a higher throne than all this world has known, where faithful ones from every tongue will one day come.